We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed should timmy chandler now be back in the u.s national team picture the simple answer is no nothing scares or angers the u.s soccer community more than unused u.s talent despite what coaches say playing well for club isn't essential form is fallacy a national team isn't about the best players it's about the best collection of players Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lalas, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. As you heard, we'll be talking about the rebirth of Timothy Chandler uh, in our Mossy Makes the Case segment. Mossy's going to be talking about a messy move, question mark. And in our Ask Alexi segment, we'll actually be doing something a little bit different this week. We are going to do a soccer Oscars segment. And then in our back three, we'll be talking about the other Burhalter, Bundesliga, uh, other leagues, and so much more. But first, joining me as always is my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you on this Monday morning? I am good coming off an interesting work weekend. To say the least, We yes. were supposed to have uh, two Bundesliga games on Sunday, but actually only ended up having one because Gladbach Cologne was canceled due to inclement weather. Some of you may know we work Bundesliga on a pretty continual basis on the weekends, which means that they are very early mornings. For you uh, and the folks in, uh, in the control room, what, what time are you guys getting up? So I'm usually waking up at 2.30 a.m. on Saturday and Sunday mornings. And by the way, I did wake up at 2.30 a.m. on Sunday because we got the email very late on Saturday night about the cancellation. I had already gone to bed. And then when I woke up, I could not fall back asleep. So it didn't do me any good as far as Same with me. I get another extra hour uh, in terms of, of waking up. Uh, unlike the uh, the crew and the folks, you know, like I said, in the control room. They are very, very early mornings. This is These are first world problems. We're not complaining. We're incredibly privileged and lucky to be able to do it. But it is it, it does mess with your weekend to a certain extent because then you have to kind of recover. And do you take a nap? And don't you take a nap? And when you're doing the Saturday and then the Sunday, do you just power on through? And like you said, in theory, we had, <laughs> we had extra time. But since we go to bed so early, a lot of us didn't see the, uh, the information. So, like, I'm not... I'm not complaining about it, but it was uh, it was interesting. And then when we finally did uh, get in, we uh, we had a wonderful game to call, especially on that uh, that Sunday with a matchup at, uh, on top, which which I would argue, even with the Milan Derby going on, was probably uh, the most anticipated and interesting game of the weekend uh, that had you know, plenty of other games uh, to watch. Well, not plenty because. England uh, right now is in that weird phase where they have some teams, uh, some teams off. Uh, I will mention this. I did an appearance this weekend in the midst of all of this uh, over with 
my uh, former team, both as a player and as an executive, the Los Angeles Galaxy, you may have heard of them. Uh, and it was, it was wonderful for a number of reasons, but what really stood out for me was the amount of people that came up to me, and there was I don't know, thousands of people at this event, uh, that came up to me and mentioned the pod. I didn't know anybody was actually listening to this. I'm still not sure anybody's actually listening to this, but the amount of people that did come up and specifically wanted me to say to, lo- to everybody, including you, Mossy, they wanted to know if you were here. I said, well, Mossy's not a big social type of guy uh, in these types of settings, uh, so he's, he's, he's not here. And even if he was, you probably wouldn't see him. But people are listening. People care about the things that, uh, mostly the things that you guys are all saying. And I, I will include Alex uh, in this. Say hello, Alex. Let's see if your microphone works here. Hey, how's it going? There we go. That's enough. And we've actually added another voice here. For those that don't know, Luis Aguilar uh, is someone that's incredibly important to what's going on behind the scenes here. Uh, I, I wanted to make sure I got his full title here. He's an associate producer. we got a lot of producers out there. And we will let him say something in the mic so you can hear some of the brains uh, behind the organization. Say hello, Luis. Hi. That's enough, too, from, uh, from both you guys. We, we'll, we'll come back to you later on in the, uh, in the show because we do have that Oscar segment, and I know both of you guys have some thoughts when it comes to uh, uh, the Oscars, the actual Oscars and the soccer Oscars out there. So full of, uh, full of activities this weekend. It was a good weekend, but a new week is upon us and so much to talk about when it comes to the, uh, the soccer world. Mossy, you ready to light this candle? Yep. All right, let's do it. As you know, each and every week, we kick the pot off with... Alexi Lawless's State of the Union. Yes, it's time for my State of the Union, where I look at a part of the game from an American perspective. And this week, it goes a little something like this. Remember Timmy Chandler, the 29-year-old right-back and Bundesliga veteran last played for the U.S. men's national team in 2016? Well, he's recently reinvented himself as a goal-scoring winger for Frankfurt. The same Timmy Chandler, who hadn't scored for Frankfurt since February 2018, now has four goals in four games since the beginning of 2020. Now, nothing draws more attention than goals. It's like soccer catnip. So, as expected, the question has been raised. Should Timmy Chandler now be back in the U.S. national team picture? The simple answer is no. Nothing scares or angers the U.S. soccer community more than unused U.S. talent. Yes, you want players playing well for their club. But despite what coaches say, playing well for club isn't essential. Form is fallacy. A national team is often a separate, different, and unique environment from a club. And connecting the two is a false equivalency. The current U.S. men's national team has moved on from Timmy Chandler and many others who caught our attention, like Bobby Wood or Terrence Boyd or Kellen Acosta and more. They had their time. They had their chance. They could still be good players, even great. But it doesn't mean they just fit right back in with the current national team. A national team isn't about the best players. It's about the best collection of players. It's worth remembering, too, that Timmy Chandler often struggled playing for the national team. He struggled with the heat. He struggled with the travel. He struggled with the responsibility. The reality is that if Timmy Chandler, a player we all know, wasn't right for Greg Berhalter's 2020 version of the U.S. men's national team three weeks ago, then he's not right now, even after scoring four goals. And that's fine. All right, Mossy, there's my uh, State of the Union for this week. Uh, we've talked about the, the formist fallacy uh, thing before on the pod. Does it apply here when it comes to Timmy Chandler, or am I way, way off base when it comes to how I'm looking at this and, and uh, I am uh, getting rid of or ignoring something that potentially could be very, very good for Greg Berhalter and company with the national team? No, I actually mostly agree with you. Even in a hypothetical world in which 
Greg Berhalter was calling up players based purely on their club form. I don't think four games would be enough for a guy who was completely out of the picture to be all the way back in the picture. I'd need to see if he can sustain this. But to me, uh, performing well for your club for a sustained period, all that does is it gets you on the radar. And then, as you mentioned, there are all sorts of other variables that need to be considered. How well would you fit with the national team? Does the position that you're playing for your club even exist with the national team? It's not fantasy. It's not just taking guys that are performing the best for their clubs and throwing them together and assuming it's all going to translate and it's going to be this functional team. And I, I do think people lose sight of that sometimes. Well, you know, I mentioned in the State of the Union that, that goals are, are like catnip, and they are because uh, automatically people see that. And you could have a, a, a midfielder or a, a defender that plays really well on a consist- consistent basis, and it wouldn't pop like this does. And that it's not just goals, but it's goals from somebody who we normally don't associate. And uh, to be clear, he's playing this position now in a more advanced position. At times he's played on the left, at times he's played on the right, but for the most part, this is an outside back. I think what Greg Berhalter has to assess, whether it's him or anybody else, and whether it's quickly or after a period of time to get that time frame that I guess would be better in terms of the way you're looking at it, he's got to assess, is he better than what I have? And when I say better, it's not just about kicking the ball because the kicking the ball will only last so long. But is he be- is he a better fit for the things that Greg Berhalter is trying to do, for the new personality and the new culture that Greg Berhalter has fostered over the last year and a half? All of those different things. And I, and I know, I know it irks people. My good friend uh, Ian was, uh, we were on uh, Bundesliga the, this, this weekend and uh, we were talking about it with uh, with Kate Abdo, and uh, <laughs> he he could not he could not understand how it was possible that somebody's scoring goals, an American is scoring goals, uh, a 29 year old at this point American is scoring goals, and that this wouldn't be somebody that you would automatically get on the plane and bring back to the national team, and. And, and I know Warren, uh, Warren Barton, my friend, uh, also a colleague was on it. And, and, and it was hard for him and others to understand how this could possibly be something uh, where you wouldn't bring him back. Do you, I mean, ultimately what I say doesn't really matter, but do you think ultimately that Chimmy Chandler is able to, I guess, keep up this pace? And whether he does or not, is he back in the picture now? Do you think Greg Berhalter calls him back here in upcoming camps? If he keeps us up, he might get a look in in a friendly or something. You know, I mean, it's at least worth considering to see if he would fit back in. But uh, you know, Chandler, as you mentioned, has had an interesting. Why wouldn't he bring him back last year or 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 any other time? Why now? Now, just because he's scoring goals, you bring him back in? Well, you know, as you mentioned, Chandler has had an interesting national team career. A lot of people associate him with Jurgen Klinsmann. He actually earned his first cap under Bob Bradley. But then uh, in the ensuing years, he turned down some calls. At times, he's given off the vibe like he didn't want to be there, like he didn't completely buy in. How much does that factor into the equation if you're Greg Berhalter? Well, you know, when I was listing out the, you know, the problems that he had, and look, by, by no stretch of the imagination, it, it, can he not have changed and overcome those, or that he was the only person that had problem? I mean, uh, problems. Look, this was a guy that was born and raised in, in, uh, in Germany and played, obviously, and continues to play in the Bundesliga, and that's what he knew. And when it comes to the travel, when it comes to the, the difficulties and challenges of playing in CONCACAF, especially when it comes to qualifying and the heat and the, the fields and all the different things, it, it is a big adjustment. You can be a great player and find yourself way out of your element. And I think oftentimes, uh, oftentimes he did. And whether it's him or anybody else, yeah, look, I want players that want to be there. And that he was conflicted, and I think 
I think he would admit that, that at times he was con conflicted. And I'm not questioning his, well, I am kind of questioning his commitment, but it has nothing to do with you know, his, his background. It just, do you want to be there? And do you want to be there on a continual basis? And what has changed now to make you want to be there uh, anymore? And I don't, I don't know if that has changed, but absolutely that plays into the assessment of him right now. Because this, unlike a young player, and that's why I said this is a player we know. We have a body of work when it comes to Jimmy Chandler as a soccer player, and in particular as a U.S. men's national team soccer player. And so absolutely that comes into play when you're assessing whether to bring him back in or not. What about this whole issue of how much value you give to a player in Europe versus a player in MLS? I've heard a lot the last few days, you have to call up a guy that's doing this in one of the top European mm -hmm. leagues. We were talking last week about Anthony Robinson's failed move to AC Milan, and you said, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but that had that move come off, Greg Berhalter would have to call him up. I mean, after all, the guy's playing for AC Milan. And, you know, we know Jurgen Klinsmann was dinged for not respecting MLS and for putting a disproportionate amount of weight on what guys were doing in Europe. How do you see Greg Berhalter with that? Here's a guy that played in the Bundesliga, but also also coached in MLS. Where does he sit well, in all that? I think that this, the, the attraction and the excitement, if you will, of this, uh, you know, this, this, what has happened over the last couple of weeks with Timmy Chandler is a hundred percent, not a hundred percent, but is directly related to the fact that he is doing it in the Bundesliga. And I'm not discounting that. That's, that's important. But I would say the same thing about a player who did this in MLS. I mean, if, if Chris Wondolowski went and was leading the league in scoring, would you bring Chris Wondolowski into the national team? And why would you do it? It has nothing to do, for me, it has nothing to do with the fact that he's in the Bundesliga. It's, it's the point that it is not about being the best player. It is not about the best players being brought in. It's about the best collection of players. And if we really want to have a successful team, then we have to be able to accept that. And as we, as an American soccer playing uh, nation, continue to grow and more and more players are more and more successful, whether they're playing domestically or they're playing internationally, we have to come to terms with the fact that there are going to be players that we love. There are going to be players that are playing great. There are going to be players that are scoring goals that might not fit in. And I know that drives people crazy, but at its core, that is the essence of what a team is, is that, you know what? You may be doing something here in a completely different circumstance and environment, okay? And that doesn't translate to this environment that I have created. Or you may be not doing something over there, but you know what? It doesn't matter because I can see something that I can take and put into my environment over here where it actually does work. We always talk about, you know, sometimes you just need a change of scenery. Okay. Well, that that applies even with it, even if it's not a permanent change of scenery. We've seen players that are killing it for club that get to the national team and they can't. And it might be because of who they are individually. It might be because of the circumstances and what is surrounding them. And we've seen players that are uh, not doing well and come to the national team are incredible players. So it it I know it's hard, it's, and it's especially hard for for our country because we are so young and because we only have so much talent out there and we feel like we are leaving something on the table when we don't bring in an American player who is playing well and especially one that is scoring goals. I asked Eric Winalda this question on the radio years ago, mm -hmm. and, I, and I remember he gave me kind of a fuzzy answer. And in Eric's defense, you are walking into like a political correctness minefield here, but we saw the goal that Gio Reyna scored in the German Cup last week for Dortmund against Bremen. Right. 
when you see a guy like Reyna do that or Pulisic or McKinney or Adams as compared to Timmy Chandler, John Brooks, Fabian Johnson do something in the Bundesliga, is there a different level of pride and identification there? A different level of pride? Well, first off, when it comes to the national team, since we don't know what Gio Reyna is, you know, I said that Timmy Chandler had his time and had his moment. We, he, Gio Reyna hasn't had that moment. Is there a different sense of pride? Yeah, I mean, you know, doing the... Uh, uh, the the game this weekend, uh, Leipzig and Bayern Munich. I took immense pride that there was two players that had come through Major League Soccer, not just the senior teams, but but players that had come through the developmental academies at those senior teams, respectively with uh, Alfonso Davies in Vancouver and Tyler Adams uh, at Red Bull uh, in uh, in New York, in New Jersey. Uh, and even, what's his name, uh, played for uh, NYCFC, Angelino, right? Uh, he, had, he had had a, a stint at NYCFC. So there was a huge American, North American, MLS type of connection there. Yeah, I, I take pride in that. That Gio Reyna was fostered and cultivated in this American system that constantly gets crapped on. Yeah, there's, a, there's, there's an added sense of pride when something like that happens. And maybe that does creep into the way that I... The, the way that I assess. But as I said before, the formist fallacy that I talk about, right, that applies to wherever you're playing. And in this case, it applies to Timmy Chandler. And by the way, if Greg Berhalter feels that Timmy Chandler is absolutely per- perfect for this group, fine, bring it in. But it shouldn't be because he scored four goals over the last four games. All right, moving on. Mossy makes the case. All right, it's that time again. Time for uh, Mossy Makes the Case. David, what are you casing for this week? My case is that goats can exist in any country. Ooh. Back in January 2006, Portsmouth fans couldn't believe their luck. They were battling relegation, but manager Harry Redknapp pulled off a major coup in the winter transfer window, acquiring Argentinian playmaker Andres D'Alessandro. D'Alessandro wound up playing 13 Premier League games, and while the numbers don't totally reflect this, he was absolutely dazzling, helping Portsmouth stave off relegation and achieving cult hero status at the club. But if you think he put an end to the notion that South American flair players aren't suited to the Premier League, think again, because 14 years later, the suggestion that a stocky left-footed Argentine could be heading to England is still being met with skepticism. Last week, Lionel Messi set off something of a crisis at Barcelona by criticizing sporting director Eric Abidal on Instagram. This incident occurred ahead of a summer in which, due to a clause in his contract, Messi could leave Barcelona for free. So the English media immediately sprang into action and began writing stories about the possibility of Messi reuniting with Pep Guardiola at Manchester City. Now, to be clear, I don't think Messi is going to leave Barcelona, but the fascinating thing here was the reaction of some former Premier League players. Emmanuel Petit said, that Messi would struggle with the pace and intensity of the Premier League. Danny Mills wondered if he would even get into Manchester City's team. Others talked about how Messi would have to cope with the fact that in England, every game is competitive, while in Spain, most Barcelona games are glorified exhibitions. All the cliches that we've grown accustomed to hearing through the years. I happen to think the leagues have become homogenized, differences in style of play are not as pronounced as they used to be, and a truly great player is a great player anywhere. But let me say this to my friends in England. If I'm wrong 
And the style of play in the Premier League is so distinct that even Messi would struggle to adapt, then we might have to come up with a different name for the sport that you're practicing. Because if you've created a league that Messi can't star in, then I'm sorry, but whatever you're playing can't be called football. Whoa. Whoa. Okay. I, I think you're conflating some things. Uh, I think this this conversation is specific to Messi as opposed to a player that plays in that type of style or a player that plays in, in this case, in La Liga, unable to adapt. We know, I mean, we know Messi's history. This would be, this would be huge news for a number of different reasons, not the least of which is because he would finally be out of that cocoon that for so long has nurtured him and kept him warm and been the the incubator for what became one of the greatest players in the world, but also continued to enable him to have a controlled environment from which he could be the greatest player, right? So that's that's the reason why we are talking about this. I think it's much more about Messi leaving that cocoon than the environment that he is going to. So if he were to not be the well, nobody's going to be the same, okay? But if he were to not live up to what we now, uh, on a consistent basis, look for Messi, I would I would think it be it would be much more because of the individual than because of the style of play. Now listen, Messi turns 33 this summer. Uh, I don't know how much longer he wants to play. That is something for any team that's thinking about pursuing Messi to consider. And yes, I do think any time you change clubs or change leagues, you, you do have to adapt to a new reality. And it is fair to wonder if the club you're going to is as good a fit as the club you were just at. But it just seems like when it's a player going to England, those conversations occur in the vein of it being a massive step up and a drastically different style of play. I'm constantly hearing about these great players in other leagues and could they cut it in the sure. Premier League and I find that talk kind of tedious I, I agree with you there I mean when the the stereotypical or classical type of framing of not just the EPL but all of English football is that you know you have your butchers and the balls in the air constantly and there's no midfield play and it's just ugly soccer and there's no possession and nobody cares and the technique isn't as good and stuff like that where Messi would be playing and the team he would be playing, that would be fine. It's not the Wild West, shall we say, that it once was. Yeah, England has always looked upon itself as a rare bird. But as you mentioned, it used to be for pejorative reasons. It used to right. be it's all about long balls and bad pitches and bad weather. And you get kicked up and down the field and they don't appreciate flair players. So why would a technical player want to go there? And then somewhere along the line, as the Premier League became this monolith, they still look at themselves as a rare bird, but it's now for more positive reasons. It's now framed as if it's, it's more competitive, more intense, a higher level of play. So it's interesting how that transformation has taken place. And, and not for nothing, players, regardless of nationality, regardless of where they are playing, ultimately they are pragmatic. And the most pragmatic are the, the ones that are defending. And, when I say, and it's not just defenders, it's people that are defending. And so you don't think that in La Liga, okay, that defenders have said, you know what? You know how I'm going to stop him? I'm going to kick him. I'm going to get as close to him as possible, and I'm going to kick him. You don't think that that has come into their mind, okay? Oh, no, we couldn't possibly do that because we're La Liga and we don't do that. No. Humans are humans. Defenders are defenders. And yes, they are humans, most of them, okay? And so they will take the most direct route to destroy, and whether you are playing in the EPL or, or in La Liga or any place else, the most direct route is to be physical and to try to kick him. 
And so don't think that that hasn't happened. One of the great things I think about Messi, yes, he's got the flair. Yes, he has the technique. But his ability to ride off tackles, his ability to do the things that we've done, even while people are trying to decapitate him, even in La Liga, okay, that's what makes him great. So this notion that he is this Fabergé egg that if, if it's not in the most pristine environment and being coddled at all times, it's going to break, I don't buy that. Yes, he has been a, in a cocoon, and that's what would be interesting for me. But that I wouldn't be worried that he's, not, that he's going to fail because people are going to try to kick him. I mentioned how when you change leagues, you do have to adapt, but it cuts every which way. Coutinho has played in the four biggest leagues in Europe, and the one where he's played the best and by far is the Premier League yeah. relative to what he's played in Serie A, La Liga, or the Bundesliga. So how do people reconcile that? Eden Hazard has one goal for Real Madrid this season. While he was still one of the best players in the Premier League last season, all I heard from Premier League folk was that, my God, in Spain he's going to have so much more space and he's going to play for Real Madrid or so much better than everybody else and he's going to just have a field day in that league and it's not happening. Christian Pulisic, I heard, was going to struggle because it's a massive step up to go from the Bundesliga to the Premier League. Those few weeks he had at Chelsea before he got injured were better than anything he did at Dortmund. I know because I covered his whole career at Dortmund. So, you know, it cuts both ways with players when they switch leagues. And in the the evergreen and never-ending debate between Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo, why, this is why I want like something this to happen. Because inevitably, people will ask me that question, and I always come down to Cristiano Ronaldo. Why? Because he's done it at multiple places, okay? Does Messi have to do it in multiple places to be considered one of the greatest, if not the greatest by people? No. But for me, if he were to do that and then were to shine— now I'm starting to think. Now I'm, st- I'm starting to think. Cristiano, I know, has done it for now in multiple leagues uh, and had that type of success. But if he were to, I mean, that, talk about getting out of your comfort zone. This is the ultimate out of your comfort zone for a player that we know has lived and thrived in comfort for so many years. I'll leave you with this thought. There's an Italian director, Ariedo Breda, who worked at AC Milan for many years and then more recently was a consultant at Barcelona. He might still be associated with Barcelona in some fashion. I'm not sure, but I saw him give an interview in the last couple of days where he said, if Messi were to decide he's leaving Barcelona, he thinks Juventus would be major players for him because they would try to link Ronaldo and Messi on the same team. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Can you imagine? Oh, goodness, goodness. Well, we are imagining this because I, I still don't, I think this is a long way from, from happening. It's amazing. You know, Messi gets on, gets on his phone, writes a little Instagram thing, and all hell breaks loose. Listen, I, I do think he's frustrated with the dysfunction at Barcelona. There's about 20% of him that does think, oh, it might be interesting to try something different. But then there's 80% that thinks, I've been here for 20 years. My wife and kids love this yeah. place. It's home. This is a club that took a chance on me when I was a scrawny 13-year-old. Everything I became, I became because of Barcelona. And he, he does like the idea of, of spending his entire career with one club. So ultimately, that wins out. And I think he ends up staying at Barcelona. Amazing. Amazing. All right. Anything else, Masi? Nope. Good case, my friend. All right, moving on. Ask Alexi. Okay, it's time for the uh, Ask Alexi segment, that hashtag Ask Alexi you use out there on all the social media networks and uh, you uh, platforms and you send us questions, comments, and concerns out there. And usually we take a few of those and we include it in this segment. But a couple days ago, we were sitting at home hanging out and uh, Masi and I got a text from our good friend uh, Alex saying, hey, let's do a soccer Oscars type of thing. And we said, all right, well, that's uh, that's interesting. That's different. And since Alex does have a microphone, I want him to give just a, a quick one sentence type of reaction to this. How did this come about so that the uh, listeners and the viewers out there understand how this how this did come about and more importantly, who to blame? 
Well, blame definitely goes to me, <laughs> but uh, it starts with a lot of the questions that we get through Twitter and stuff. You know, people want to know your movie thoughts, and of course, with the Oscars going on, that was the impetus for this. So it gives us a chance to talk about the actual Oscars, which happened last night, but also give a soccer spin on the Oscars for the podcast itself. All right, wonderful. Uh, okay, we're going to make the best of this then, right, Mossy? Okay, so what we're going to do is first we're going to do our soccer Oscars, and then we're going to go right into the uh, actual Oscar talk. All right, so we all know the uh, the best picture type of thing, right? And there were some wonderful games. And what we're concentrating here, right, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Alex, is the year 2019. Yes. Okay, start to finish, January to... Uh, December. Okay, so best picture. Mossy, uh, you might remember some of these. Liverpool, Barcelona, that 4 nothing uh, in the Champions League semis. Man City, Tottenham, the 4-3, to also in uh, Champions League, but in the quarterfinals we had that uh, VAR overruling Raheem Sterling's goal right there at the end. Ajax, which was such a, a, a breath of fresh air in Champions League, the 2-3 to uh, against uh, Spurs. And Spurs were down 3-0 on aggregate and then came back and all that craziness with Lucas Mora. Real Madrid, Ajax. Once again, Ajax, uh, Real Madrid won Ajax 4, just announcing their presence with authority. Uh, and then that Chelsea-Ajax game 4-4 to in the uh, group stage. Eight goals, two penalties, two red cards, and VAR madness. Uh, anything jump out to you? And if you were voting, who, this is what I did with my kids uh, last night during the Oscars. I said, don't tell me necessarily who you think should win, or you can tell me who you should win, but who do you think is going to win? Who are the voters going to vote for? If people are out there listening to this, which one of those games do you think they vote for? Or do you have a, a write-in that you want to add? No, I think Alex came up with some good choices here. Um, I agonized between the two games involving Tottenham, the 4-3 against City. That game had a little bit of everything, including some VAR controversy at the end. Uh, but ultimately, I went with the second leg semifinal against Ajax, 3-2, Lucas Mora hat-trick. That was absolutely incredible, uh, the way they advanced to the final. I completely agree with you, and that's who I would pick. And I think that's ultimately who most would pick. I think it had the most drama. I think it was the most passionate uh, and while the others all all qual- I mean, it's like it's it's like parasite, you know. <laughs> you say uh, which which one of these uh, which one of these should win and which one is going to win? And those are di- those are different things. But I think you're absolutely right with the uh, Tottenham coming back. I mean that, that Lucas Moore. You see the clock ticking down and down and or up and up and up. But you know it's coming to an end. And literally the last gasp of the game, they find a way through. All right, so you think that's going to happen. Let us know if you're out there and you uh, disagree. I'm sure people disagree. Uh, we know uh, best director is a huge thing in the, uh, in the Oscars. We're going to equate directors with managers, coaches, and certainly from a year perspective, it's hard to find coaches, managers uh, that had better years than Klopp, Pep, Poch, okay. I mean, we can put that in there, and we were just talking about Spurs and their uh, their exploits, even though he's no longer there. Uh, and then certainly Jill Ellis winning not just a World Cup, but her second World Cup I- in a row. And I know it's just about a year, but still, you want to you want a World Cup. Anything jump out to you there? Well, I do want to highlight what a sexist Alex Dowd is because he puts Klopp, Pep, and Poch, and then for Jill Ellis, he puts a question mark. Why? Why is there a question mark around a coach who won the World Cup? Typical Alex. But uh, I am going to go with uh, Jurgen Klopp. Hold on, he's got uh, something to say. I can tell. It's it. a question of all of them. It's all in one sentence well, there. Then it's grammar, okay? <laughs> uh, I am going to go with Jurgen Klopp. You are? Yes. 
Why? Uh, as I've said before, I think he's, he was the most pivotal figure in world football in 2019. Uh, just what he's transformed Liverpool into has been truly remarkable. I Well, I am going, it's, you're 100% right. But however, I am going to go with Jill Ellis. And I know it's just a year, but this is someone who at times people had uh, knives out. Was that one of the... Uh, the uh, didn't get nominated, but it was a very good movie. Well, there you go. All right. Best original screenplay. Okay, there you go. Best original screenplay for Knives Out. Talk about Knives Out. At times, her own players had Knives Out for her, and yet she still able was able to not just manage, but manage, I mean, I would say most one of the most high-profile, demanding, I would even say at times difficult and challenging group of individuals. And I say that in the best sense. They're big personalities. They're bold. They're arrogant. And it's not that easy to keep them together and keep them together for two World Cup cycles in a row and to win uh, that second World Cup and then completely drop the mic. So uh, I would say Jill uh, Jill Ellis over uh, the other ones because you are champions of the world there. Was right? that Luis Aguilar correcting me a yes. moment ago? I mean, you know, we give him a microphone, Mossy, and you see what happens? All right, let's keep it moving. All right, keep it moving. Um, best actor, okay? Uh, we're going to start with best actor here. And look, the, the usual suspects uh, apply, as is often the case. There's no real young buck or, or unknown that's kind of uh, come up. So go, you Can I suggest to something? Yes. Let's connect the two male awards, uh, best actor, best supporting actor, then do the two female, okay. only because it warrants an explanation. Alex threw Virgil van Dyke in the supporting actor category. He was going more for flashy attacking players in the best actor and then uh, supporting actor being more somebody who does the dirty work, a less flashy position. So that's kind of how we're looking at it. Okay. Well, do you want to do the, the uh, best supporting actor first? No, no. Or? I just mean, I okay. just mean, you know, it would, people would wonder why wasn't Virgil van Dyke one of the candidates for best actor? Yeah, I, I mean, the man for yeah. second okay. for right. the well, I know we're going backwards too because we started out with best picture, but you know, we can we can do this. Yeah. So, so for so I, for best actor, best male player, then I would do Messi, and then for best supporting actor, then I would I would do Van Dyke if he's in that category. Oh, so you're saying best Messi though? You're not going to do Lewandowski or Mbappe or Sterling or Benzema or Mane or Ronaldo or. Neymar or anything like that. I'm going to do Messi, but uh, I'm not sure if he could cut it in the Premier League. <laughs> All right. I am I am going to go Lewandowski. And I think that there it's, it's a sentimental choice. And we know that sometimes the members of the academy, sometimes they do that. Somebody that's just been there and done that on a consistent basis and yet hasn't the perception is that hasn't been given their due. I think that's what you're going to see. That's your, what you're going to see here from a Lewandowski perspective. It's not as if people don't know who he is, but that he's doing it once again. I think this was this would be his moment to give him his due that oftentimes he hasn't because he's not Ronaldo or he's not Messi. And let me just say, Virgil van Dyke being in the supporting actor category is like Anthony Hopkins having been a supporting actor for Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> okay, so you're going to go with Messi. All right, uh, let's do, and you, uh, you wanted to say best supporting actor, and you can th- you throw in some different people. Like, for example, I put uh, Latif Blessing, who is a player for LAFC, in that he supported Carlos Vela and that entire team and basically cleaned up the entire midfield. Now, that's a this is a off-the-radar type of pick for people when it comes to that. But you know what? The Academy sometimes likes that uh, likes that uh, that type of pick. So I'm, I'm throwing someone like Latif Blessing in there. You, you would do a Virgil van Dyke or somebody else? Yeah, yeah, like I said, Virgil van Dyke. Yeah, I guess that's all right. I guess that's all right. All right, supporting actress. 
So best actress. You want to do best actress first? Okay, best actress. Best actress, which would be the best female player out there. So you're you're you know take your pick when it comes to anyone on the U.S. women's national team, uh, and then from a uh, international perspective, I'm sure a lot of people, rightfully so, will point to Sam Kerr, and I think she would be, I think the one to to garner that global support. So if there was an academy, I think that they would vote against the U.S. team because they're so good and they kind of want to give it to somebody who was doing it with less talent around them uh, and still was able to shine. So I think a lot of people will pick Sam Kerr. I am not a lot of people. I will not pick Sam Kerr. And so I will pick the greatest actress that our sport maybe has ever seen, and that would be Megan Rapino. Who would you pick? I'm going to go outside the box here. I'm going to go with Vivian Miedema. Really? Who, okay. Great uh, year for Arsenal at club level. And I would argue the Netherlands getting to the World Cup final was actually a more notable achievement than the U.S. winning uh, the World Cup. So I think uh, I'm going to honor her for her overall year of club and country. Well, the reason why I would do Megan Rapino is that, look, we all know, and if we needed any confirmation just watching the Oscars this past, uh, this past Sunday, was that we all know that actors can be a pain in the ass, okay? And they can get very full of themselves. And at times they can say and do things uh, that are off script and at times get us to roll our eyes. And so Megan Rapino in that sense is is exactly that. I love her, okay? I don't always agree with the things that she does and says, but ultimately when it comes down to the performance, when it comes down to that 90 minutes, all right, she delivered, okay? And that's what I want in a star. I can disagree with them from whatever, you know, different uh, vantage point or viewpoint that they have on, about different things in, uh, when, it's, when, when the game's not happening uh, or when they're not actually acting. But then when that camera's on, you got to deliver. And she did. So I, I would go with Megan Rapinoe for best actress, uh, which means best female player. All right, best supporting actress. People would throw in, as I would, someone like Crystal Dunn uh, on that left back position, a position that she doesn't even play. And yet not only did she play it, but she starred for the U.S. and won a World Cup in the process. And speaking of outside backs, Lucy Bronze, who I think was playing on a much inferior type of team when it comes to her international career with England, and yet she's shown each and every time. So the way that she supported and way that both of those players supported, if I had to pick one, I'm still going with Crystal Dunn because uh, the fact that she played a position that she not only doesn't play, but anytime you talk to her, made it very, very clear that I don't even think she wanted to play, and yet she did exactly what was asked of her and was wonderful time and time again. Does Julie Ertz count as a supporting actress? Sure. Or, okay, I'll go with Sure, her. you want to go with Julie Ertz? Cleaning yes. up that midfield right in front of everybody, letting all the uh, the big stars, including sure. Megan Rapino, do what they need to do, and uh, somebody's got to clean up for them ultimately. Yeah, okay, you can do that. All right. And then best original score, which means basically best goal. Now, I know you were uh, watching some of these to get a real grip on some of the goals out there. And look, there's a million uh, goals out there. So is there one that just stood out to you from uh, from uh, this past year? I love the Dybala one. Versus you did, Triestina. yeah. That and was very good. Crazy spin and then the chip. So I'll go with that. I loved the Son goal, the end-to-end type of thing. And and look, when you, when you have a goal of the year, oftentimes you're going to see a bunch of different bikes and bikes are wonderful and, and they're great. And then they require incredible skill and timing and they make you go ooh and ah. But 
at, at the heart and soul of our game is something like, and the definitive moment of Diego Maradona dribbling through the entire England team and scoring that goal. I mean, that not just defined him, but in a certain sense for a lot of us, it defined soccer. And so I had not seen, look, people score great goals, but that was not the equivalent, but as close as I've seen to end-to-end, dribbling through people, finishing it off. It was beautiful. At each and every moment, you said, all right, this is where it ends. This is where he passes the ball, or this is where he gets tackled, or this is where he takes a bad touch. And yet it never got to that point. So that would certainly be the one that I would vote for. And a a close second, and bringing it back uh, home, Carlos Vela had a wonderful goal this year where he basically walked it all the way into the goal. It required every different type of movement and touch. And uh, so he would get an honorable mention from me. Yeah, on the Son go, Mourinho's one redeeming quality is he shares my love for the Brazilian Ronaldo. So that's the name that he evoked after that goal because Mourinho was an assistant to Bobby Robson at Barcelona during the 96-97 campaign when Ronaldo scored like five or six goals like that over the course of that season. He was, his form was bordering on illogical that season. <laughs> All right, real quick, we'll finish this off. Best costume. So uh, obviously the jerseys, the kits, whatever you want to call them out there. There's a lot of good ones out there. There's a lot of bad ones out there too, uh, like like movies. Uh, so France away that they wore in the World Cup. Australia home that they wore in the World Cup. Chelsea away. Well, I wonder how, got, how that one got in there. And then uh, Tottenham's uh, third kit. I would also uh, add, I think Nigeria always has interesting and different cool jerseys and so whether it's this summer uh from the world cup i would put them in uh, in part of my uh, assessment what about you anyone jump out at you uh the france awake yeah. kid I it's like always just classic the france the french just know fashion and they know how to do it from a sports perspective uh out there all right so you're gonna go with the france away i'm gonna australia was good too because it's different you know and i'm gonna talk more about jerseys and the attire of uh, soccer players later on in the show. By the way, Alex trying to rush us along here, he comes up with this nonsense idea, which everybody's <laughs> going to fast forward through anyway, but it, it, this is this is going to be a longer podcast, just accept it. Um, just accept so it. So should we transition to the actual Well, Oscars? yeah, I mean, we, we should talk about the thing. And, and the reason why we want to talk about it is for those that listen to the pod for a number of months now, we've kind of been talking about different movies that we've seen. And Luis in particular... Okay, is a is a movie buff. We all we all are, and it it brought, uh, brought the Oscars this week for anybody that didn't watch them. Uh, the big winner was Parasite, first foreign language film to win Picture of the Year, uh, first film from South Korea to do so. I mean, they basically swept everything. I have yet to see Parasite. I know you've seen it, uh, and I know you guys have seen it, but our friend Luis had been talking about it uh, for a number of months, and we, like a lot of things that, that he says, ignored him. But here is some actual evidence that he is prescient, that he is able to see the future, and that ultimately, while it hurts us to admit it, the man knows his film. By the way, this year is a fantastic movie year. Last night I saw Parasite, which is a movie that's getting I've a heard lot of that's buzz. awesome. I heard yes. that's awesome. We're getting um, <laughs> Yeah, Luis Aguilar highly recommended it. Seat back there. Yeah. All right, so he predicted it. Uh, and to be fair, you you once you saw it, you said this was a great, no, but uh, Luis, a great film too. Luis was the first one to bring that movie to my attention, so so kudos to him. He got the hype train going, which culminated with last night. He was something of a, of a kingmaker he in, was, in the he Oscar was. season. Luis, did you uh, shed a tear last night when your uh, beloved Parasite won? 
Yes, it did. Okay. But the personality from our producers, it's, it's been just a stroke of genius to give them <laughs> microphones. But let me just say, as you know, I don't have much of a life. Right. Uh, no, no girlfriend, certainly very few friends. So well, I uh, can confirm this. Yes. Yeah. So I, I go to movies a lot by myself. Mm-hmm. I have nothing else to do. So I saw all nine Best Picture nominees. <laughs> And frankly, I saw a lot of good movies that didn't even get nominated, like The Two Popes, which blows my mind, didn't get nominated. I thought it was fantastic. Uh, I even saw the movie that won for Best Documentary, American Factory, uh, which was produced by Barack and Michelle Obama, which was absolutely terrific. Can't recommend it enough. But this was a a very strong movie year. My three favorites were 1917, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and Parasite. I would have been fine with any of those three winning, but I was happy Parasite won because it it was an outside-the-box choice for the Academy. 1917 is sort of that typical Oscars catnip kind of sure. movie. So it, w- it was nice to see them go a different way with it and, and reward something different and unique. So very satisfying and to what was a terrific movie year for me. Uh, very happy that Parasite All right. won. Well, I'm glad that you guys liked Parasite. I will ultimately be the final judge when it comes to this. So I will see this film. I, I was talking to my wife and we kind of want to see it in a theater now because it's kind of been pumped up to such a big thing. I don't want any kind of distractions. So we'll see where I where I see it, but we will see it. And by the time we talk again, I will have seen Parasite, and I will give you my two cents. Two more Oscar thoughts, and then we'll move on. Okay. Um, very disappointed. Scarlett Johansson didn't win anything last night. I'm a huge fan of hers, and she she was nominated for two different movies: Marriage Story and Jojo Rabbit, and she was excellent in both. Both movies were excellent, so they could have found a way to, to honor well, her in she some did fashion. An, uh, she did an accent, and the other one was you know screaming and yelling, and then right internal conflict and external conflict and divorce. And then the other thing, how about that best supporting actor category where you had Tom Hanks, Brad Pitt, Al Pacino, Joe Pesci, and Anthony Hopkins. That, that's like the, like the 97 Brutal. Heisman with Woodson, Randy Moss, and Peyton Manning. Absolutely incredible category. No idea what um, you're talking about. But so, uh, <laughs> did you like the no host, by the way? I did not like the no host. Shout out to all the cows out there, by the way. And yeah, I mean, look, it, part of the fun is laughing uh, either along or oftentimes laughing at some of the things that are going on. It wasn't as uh, as irritating as I thought it would be at times. There was plenty of irritation uh, and p- plenty of bombast uh, to, to be had out there, but it needed some it needed some direction. Uh, I thought that uh, who's the uh, the uh, green-haired uh, young lady uh, that sings? Billie Eilish. Billie Eilish. Thank you, uh, Luis. Boy, Luis, all over. Uh, he's, I told you he would be good. Uh, uh, so Billie Eilish, uh, I thought she did a great job singing uh, yesterday. Some people the, joked it felt like the Grammys. There was so many musical. Well, uh, no, that was M&M good. And that, that's what I'm saying. And the M&M thing was cool, although evidently it wasn't cool because it was so quote unquote old. So <laughs> that's probably why I enjoyed it. Uh, so I thought that was cool because it was a surprise. Why it was there, I don't think anybody knows, but I don't really care. Uh, and so that's my assessment. Uh, another Oscar season comes and goes, and we are left with uh, the fact that I have to go see this movie, Parasite, and then uh, give you my assessment next uh, week. Anything else from uh, the peanut gallery over there? I celebrated so hard during the Parasite win that I hit my head against the chandelier. I was jumping up and down. Really? Yeah. Why? I'm sorry. Are you, are you, did you produce this movie or do you have some sort of stake? Do you have some sort of... Uh, is, some, is anybody in your family in this? or? I just didn't think it could win and I really wanted it oh, to. Oh, little engine that could. Oh, choo-choo. All right, perfect. And, and if I know Louise, he had a bit of a crush on the translator last night for Parasite. Is that not true? 
and she was running out of stuff to translate. I mean, it was it was it was great. I I, I enjoyed those speeches. I mean, I felt I, I felt myself cheering and applauding anytime somebody came up and was clear and concise. And the the, the at one point there was the award for editing. And at one point later on in the show, I said, "Can we get those editors back up there because <laughs> so they 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 really needed some help at times." All right. Uh, that's enough uh, Oscar talk. Thank you for letting us indulge in this uh, foray into a little bit of uh, Oscar talk and soccer talk uh, that we have thrown in there. Let us know if you agree or more probably uh, that you disagree with a lot of the stuff that we said. All right, moving on. The back three. All right, we're back on track here. We are at our back three. Uh, Some big stories and games and moments out there. Mossy, what do we got uh, going in our back three this week? First up, uh, big news involving the U.S. Soccer Federation. Jay Burhalter stepping down as CCO. I know you have a lot of thoughts on this. Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting, and and I will add to this, uh, you know, some some interesting things coming out in U.S. soccer in general, and things that apply both on and off the field. Number one. Uh, congratulations to the U.S. women's national team on qualifying for the Olympics. Certainly not a surprise, and they breezed through qualification, and we'll see if they can uh, go on this summer in the Olympics and win that gold again, and that's what they are tasked with, and that's often what times, often what they do. Uh, two, the CBA news coming out, and we're not going to get into all the weeds. Just It's a good thing. It's a good thing, not just for Major League Soccer that the CBA was signed, but it's a good thing for soccer, especially in this day and age when there are so many lawsuits out there. And by the way, a lot of the lawsuits that involve U.S. Soccer, the United States Soccer Federation, which brings us to Jay Burhalter. And for those that don't know, uh, Jay Burhalter is the chief commercial officer for the United States Soccer Federation. And yes, if that name sounds familiar, he is also the brother of current head coach uh, Greg Burhalter. And uh, he announced this week that he is stepping down. Why is that interesting or why is that important? Well, Jay Burhalter. Uh, was once seemingly being groomed and destined for the ultimate position, which is the CEO of soccer. And the CEO position right now is empty. Uh, Then a little something happened on the way to the CEO position, and that would be, first and foremost, the U.S. didn't qualify for the World Cup in 2018. And all hell broke loose, as we know, in terms of the United States Soccer Federation, and we are still feeling the ramifications and there are still ramifications and individuals being held to account, including Jay Burhalter. He obviously saw the writing on the wall that this was not going to be uh, his position. This is a guy who's been around soccer since 1994, starting uh, with the World Cup back then and been with the Federation for the last couple of decades. And like anybody who's been in a position for a long time, you're going to have people that like you, you're going to have people that don't like you. He certainly presided over a period of Uh, of growth and uh, certainly was successful uh, in terms of the uh, the business side. Uh, smart guy. I I know him. I, I respect him. I'll be really interested to see ultimately what he does. But I think when he found out that he was not going to get that ultimate job, which was uh, CEO, that he recognized that uh, this was a time to move on. And it maybe it will be good for him, and maybe it will be good uh, for the Federation. But make no mistake, I don't think that this happens, either him moving on or him not being considered for the CEO position and, and ultimately not getting it if the U.S. qualifies for the 2018 World Cup. That's how, that's how big a moment it was. That's how big a failure, and that's how 
That's how big and long-lasting these ripples uh, continue to affect individuals uh, as, as we go on. Because when it comes to qualifications, the man has as much qualifications as anybody else. And maybe they want to go in a different direction. And that's, that's all fine and well. And we'll find out who that person is uh, and who uh, and he or she uh, is when it comes to that new position. And I hope it's somebody of quality. And I wish Jay Berhalter the, the best uh, going forward. And I thank him for all the work that he has done from a soccer perspective. Uh, he was also criticized and criticized heavily, especially with a lot of the anonymous uh, what do they call them? Glass door reviews that came out that appeared in the New York Times and all that kind of stuff where a lot of people really took him to task and, and uh, blamed him for fostering a, uh, a toxic environment. And, you know, I have no inside knowledge as to whether that is true or not. But, you know, these are anonymous uh, types of things. And I, I would suspect that if you go into any type of corporate situation or any type of business and you ask people anonymously what they think of their bosses or the people in leadership, you're going to get plenty of people that are going to say good things and plenty of people that, that are going to say bad things. So that's that's uh, that's nothing new. The relationship between him and uh, Greg Berhalter, his brother, and how that all came to be, at times he was criticized and at times he was accused of orchestrating the whole thing. I don't think that that's what happened, but look, optics are important, baggage is important, especially in this time where the United States Soccer Federation is trying to turn a new page and be something uh, be something new right now. I think given his qualifications, there'll be plenty of opportunities uh, for Jay Berhalter. This is certainly the end of a chapter for him and an end of a chapter, I think, for U.S. soccer because that new CEO coming in, whoever that is, I think is going to give, be given a clean slate, uh, but is certainly going to have plenty of things to do and uh, keep the business up, make sure the competitive side on the field continues. But I just, it, it, it's amazing to me how much that failure in 2017 to not qualify for 2018, just still, it just, the stank of that is all over everything. And it is just not gone away. And guess what? It probably won't go away until the U.S. qualifies again. And so the sooner that happens, the better off everybody's, everybody's going to be. And until that happens, uh, there can continue to be fallout from that. So. Uh, just an update on men's Olympic soccer, yeah. since you mentioned the women. Uh, the South American qualifying tournament came to an end yesterday. Argentina and Brazil claimed the two spots. So we're now up to 14 of the 16 spots have been claimed. The two CONCACAF ones are the last two remaining, and it, it's, a, it's a pretty tasty field. You've got France, Germany, Spain, Brazil, Argentina. Now, you, we do have Copa America and Euros going on uh, in the same summer, so we'll see how all those European and South American powers approach that and whether they can get players released. But I suspect they're all going to have pretty good teams. So anybody that doesn't think it'd be useful for the United States to qualify for that tournament and send an under-23 team with three overage players to face the likes of Brazil, Argentina, France, Germany, Spain, I mean, come on. If you, if you throw out the Olympics, we've, we've, we've talked about this before, and we're going to talk about it as we lead up, you are really throwing the baby out with the bathwater if you don't <laughs> recognize the opportunity that is at hand. All right, so uh, anyway, that's the uh, the Berhalter uh, news out there. I wish him well, and I hope that going forward, the United States Soccer Federation replaces both his position and then ultimately the CEO position with people of quality that are going to lead this United States Soccer Federation uh, into uh, into the uh, you know the next uh, the next phase. But 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 I'm going to just tag this. Just because his last name is Burhalter, I hope that that had nothing to do with why this happened, okay? Because just because you have the same last name as the head coach, I want the best person for the job. 
even if that person happens to be related. And I know it gets sticky, and I know, as I said, baggage and optics and all that kind of stuff, but you shouldn't be ruled out of a position simply because uh, of your last name. And I'm not sure that that, that happened here, but uh, that's, that's the way that I think of it. I'm sure others, because there's people that are celebrating this and people that are lamenting this, and that's usually the way that, uh, that it happens in life. All right, what's next, Mossy? All right, next up, uh, Bundesliga, two massive games this past weekend. On Saturday, Leverkusen beat Dortmund 4-3. On Sunday, Bayern and Leipzig played to a scoreless draw, but don't let the score fool you. I thought it was a very compelling game. Yep. All of us who uh, are kind of tired of Bayern winning and want at least a race this season kind of had that uh-oh feeling going into this game. But uh, Leipzig, uh, I thought, played well, and they, they get a point out of it. So in your view, did Leipzig really sort of confirm their title credentials here and show that they're for real and that they're going to be in it until the end? They did. They, they bent, but they didn't break. And that's, that's important, especially playing away, especially playing against Bayern Munich. I was much more disappointed in Bayern Munich than I was pleased with Leipzig. Uh, I still think that it's Bayern Munich's to lose, but that was an opportunity that a Bayern Munich, it, it, that surprised me that a Bayern Munich, even a 2020 version of Bayern Munich, let get away. They, they, they took their foot off the gas and almost at a certain point they said, okay, that's enough. And that's, that's dangerous, I think, because this is the time when normal Bayern Munich says, all right, we, we, flirted with you for the last couple of uh, months and we did our moments where things weren't going well but and we made our coaching change and now we'll take it from here well they were they were being shown the 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 path that they've taken so many times and they kind of held back and said no I'm just going to have a, a cigarette and hang out here for a little bit and that's not what Bayern Munich normally do. Yeah, I was texting with Keith Koskinen about this yesterday. When the team sheet came out, I thought Nagelsmann had contracted Tuchel's disease. Uh, Thomas Tuchel used to always overthink the Bayern games right. and come up with these funky formations and odd lineup choices. I couldn't believe Angelino was starting a game like that. Uh, but it, it, it kind of worked. So I, th I think Nagelsmann kind of enhanced his reputation by coming up with a pretty good game plan there. Yeah, and it was fun to see uh, uh, Alfonso Davies just ruin that left-hand side. He doesn't even play left back, let's be honest, uh, for, for Bayern Munich and Tyler Adams playing that hybrid type of right back for Red Bull coming up against him at times getting burned and even mentioned after the game Tyler Adams said yeah this was a kind of situation where I was going I was more of a midfield going forward but as more of a right back defending that's hard. Why do we keep asking Tyler Adams to play a hybrid type of right-back position? I was going to go Alfonso Davies next. I mean, he is emerging as somebody that could be the best left-back in the world uh, in the very near future. It's been an amazingly successful position switch there for him. And it's going to be interesting to see with Lucas Hernandez uh, almost back to full fitness. He, he came on in this game. Davies is now undroppable at left back, and Alaba has shifted to the middle, and Lucas Hernandez is their record sign, and you figure when he's 100% fit, he has to play, but then can you have uh, two left-footed center backs and, and three left-footed players across the back line? I think a lot of managers don't want that, so it could be potentially awkward to have Davies, Alaba, and Lucas Hernandez all in there, so Hansi Flick's going to have to figure that out. And, you know, the wonderful thing for Alfonso Davies for me is, and keep in mind, he wasn't a left back, and now he is a left back, and I think we all recognize that that is his position he's still because we all know he's fast but he still hasn't really even harnessed it to the extent that he has and that's what makes it so we see moments where he's much more efficient 
and doesn't have to rely on the speed, but then we know everybody that's, that's fast has that in their back pocket. And when it is an emergency situation, you just don't want to put yourself in emergency situations when there's no need to. And I, st- I still think that he is learning. And once he harnesses that, I mean, that's that sweet spot where you got the physical part if you need it, but your mind is at a place where you are able to anticipate and avoid some of those moments where, uh, where you need to access it. And the one bad note for Bayern, I would say, is Coutinho, who didn't start, yeah. which is notable in and of itself, their biggest game of the season so far. And then when he came on, I mean, the body language was just awful. Uh, listen, Coutinho's had kind of an up and down season so far, but even the supposed bad games, I can still look at it and be, this is still better than Barcelona last season. That was the first time where it felt really like Barcelona Coutinho, and, and that's not a good thing. So he, he needs to get himself sorted. Very quickly on the uh, Leverkusen Dortmund, uh, I don't know how many times Lucien Favre can stand there with that dear and headlights look and be completely surprised that they're conceding these late goals and blowing these leads. I, it's just driving me crazy. He's got to somehow figure that out. I don't know how, but it's completely ridiculous. But on a positive note, I thought Jaden Sancho was absolutely sensational in this game. My, my love affair with him knows no bounds. And folks, go back and watch Dortmund's third goal in that game scored by Rafael Guerrero and Jaden Sancho's little layoff to Hakimi. It's very subtle, but it was, and, and, and I'm not being hyperbolic here, I really believe this, it was Messi-level brilliance, the Ooh. play that he made. In that game. Go back and wow. watch. And I, it's amazing to me that there's still English folk that can't get past their Premier League insularity and fully appreciate what they have here. He still gets sort of tossed in the pile of good young English players. This is something completely different. This is a transcendent talent. He's the most technically gifted English player I've ever seen in my life, and he does things with the ball that I haven't seen a player that age do since Messi. So I I hope folks in England fully appreciate what they have in Sancho. I love, love, love So if you have to put a value on him, what's he valued at? What's a transfer fee? 200 million euros. 200 million. You heard it here. I love the guy. Ah, Um, The stamp of approval. All right. All right, so uh, we'll end in Italy, which Serie A is red hot right now. Uh, this past weekend, Ronaldo scored for the 10th straight league game, which is amazing. But Juve actually lost 2-1 to Hellas Verona. And then Inter had this amazing come-from-behind win in, in the derby. They were trailing AC Milan 2-0 at the half. Ibrahimovic with a goal and an assist. Yep. But Inter stormed back with four goals in the second half. They win 4-2. Lazio won as well. Right now, it's Inter and Juventus both on 54 points. Lazio uh, on 53. This kind of snuck up on all of us, but we've been touting this Bundesliga race. Suddenly, Serie A with an incredible three-team race That's as great. well. That's huh? great. Yeah, you think Zlatan misses MLS? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's fun to see, and it's fun, it's fun to watch. You know, I still think from a... From a top to bottom, well, not top to bottom, but certainly from a, from a title race, you're still looking at the Bundesliga. You think right that's now. still a more compelling race I, to you? I, I still think so, and I know I'm biased because that's the one that I deal with on a week-to-week basis. But no, I mean, there's there's plenty of compelling stories uh, uh, right now. I mean, the fact that somebody is challenging in Serie A is huge. And what what Inter has done, and there was a time there, obviously, uh, it was the Derby, uh, Milan and, uh, and Inter and there was a time during that game they said oh it's on and then they kicked it into another gear Inter was horrible the first half and then second half they kicked it they kicked it into gear and they showed that they are definitely part of that conversation not just the points because it's one thing to have the points it's another thing to pass that 
that test where you have the confidence that they are going to kick on and continue to be biting at the heels. And one note, most uh, websites are listing Inter in first place because they have the better goal difference. The first tiebreaker in Serie A is actually head-to-head, and Juventus won the first meeting 2-1 at the San Siro. They play again in three weeks in Turin, so the result of that game will actually determine who has the tiebreaker there. But, you know, Inter have been there all season. To me, the story is Lazio, who have just snuck up on everybody, and the most underrated story in European football this season, I haven't mentioned this guy's name once on the podcast, and shame on me, is Chiro Immobile, who has 25 Serie A goals already. He's on pace to uh, potentially break the single-season Serie A record, which is 36 by Gonzalo Higuain. I mean, you know, you played in that league. I know it had a reputation for defense, but still, some amazing strikers have played in the league that you were chasing around every week. So, I mean, anybody that's that's approaching any kind of scoring record no, in that it's, league is... it's. I mean, it's incredible. And, and it's not that they can't play poorly defensively. Uh, it's not that, it, that you can't have individuals that aren't great defenders or that you can't have teams that don't defend d- defend great. It's just that there has been a traditional type of approach to defending that transcends teams. It's just a an appreciation, if you will, and a respect. And so when you have somebody that is doing something like that, uh, you know, that he is doing it in Syria, it's not going to get the global type of uh, headlines that it probably deserves. But look, the most difficult thing and therefore the most valuable thing in our game is putting the ball in the back of the net. And there are few people that are able to do it, able to do it on a consistent basis uh, and able to do it to the extent that, uh, that someone like him is doing it. So absolutely, you should, uh, you should celebrate it. When you were in Syria, mm-hmm. what striker were you most intimidated to come up against? I wasn't intimidated, but I was at the time when Batistuta was scoring all his goals. And so I remember, uh, I'll never forget that I once... Um, he was in the middle of one of these streaks that he was scoring, and I was bound and determined not to let him score because I had played against him with Argentina, you know, and, and uh, the U.S. from an international perspective. But we were coming up club to club, and I was just like, "You cannot score." So, you know, as a center back, you know, you're going to be marking a, a player, and that was my individual uh, one-on-one thing. And <laughs> he ended up scoring, but he ended up scoring on a penalty, a penalty that I did not commit, and I felt, I felt cheated of that moment because I wanted to be standing there after that 90 minutes saying he had scored you know, some 10 goals, or 10 games in a row or something ridiculous like that. And we were coming up against him. We were playing in Florence and he ended up scoring and he scored it on a penalty. And I just, I was just shaking my head after the game saying, that's not right. Cause he hadn't earned it. I hadn't been the one that, t- that, that took him down. And yet obviously he's going to step up and take it and continue his, score, his scoring streak. And last thing for me, uh, you did mention the Premier League is in something of a break here. And we know that the Premier League sucks a lot of the air out of the room mm-hmm. on these weekends. So it has shined a light on some of these other leagues. And this was a phenomenal weekend. You had the Leverkusen and Dortmund 4-3. Yesterday you had going on simultaneous to each other, this unbelievable Betis-Barcelona game. Barca won 3-2. You had PSG Lyon, which was 4-2. You had the, the Derby with Inter and AC Milan 4-2. So very fun weekend all the way around in these other leagues. So the moral is uh, less EPL g- gives you more. The, I, I very very anti Premier League pod for me today wow. with all the messy stuff in this. Uh, Warren Barton and Kate Abdo might have some words for me <laughs> th- this week. All right. Uh, anything else, Masi? No, that's it. All right. So we come to uh, the end of the show, and at the end of each show, we uh, give you one for the road. So uh, I spent this past week in New York, so a few days in New York. I was brought out for the. Jersey launch uh, of all of the MLS teams. They had a big old party with a bunch of celebrities and everything like that. And the reason why they brought me out there 
was I was representing one of my former MLS teams. I played for a bunch of different teams. One of them, and the first one, the original one, was the New England Revolution. So the Revolution was kind enough to bring me out to New York. And so each team had, in a fashion show, somebody representing and wearing uh, the, new, uh, the new jerseys for, uh, for 2020. And so I was there to represent the New England Revolution. It was wonderful, incredible honor and privilege to be able to do that. Uh, it was great to meet everybody. Uh, there were people that I knew, people that I didn't know. I met... Colin Hanks, who was representing LAFC, uh, wonderful, uh, wonderful man. We had a really uh, nice conversation. Mers, who was a rapper who was re- uh, representing LA Galaxy, never heard of him. What a, what a gentleman! What a, what a wonderful person. We talked about kids and nannies and schools and stuff like that. Uh, I met Ninja. Ninja is uh, you probably don't know who Ninja is, but he is a gamer, a Fortnite legend, phenomenon. Uh, couldn't have been nicer. Uh, so I, I, I determined that of all the teams that at one point we were all standing on stage together, I was the oldest person on stage. Uh, and that means that I've been around <laughs> a long time. And the reason why the revolution brought me in is because I was on that original revolution team. All of that is to say is that the design of jerseys, kits, shirts, whatever you want to call them, is always something that brings about uh, opinion. I can remember when Major League Soccer first started in the in the mid '90s, and that whole '90s aesthetic and big bold symbols and colors and all that all that kind of stuff. And at times it gets a a, a bad rap. Uh, I also remember uh, speaking of the '90s, the the denim, the faux denim that we had as a uh, national team. And it's amazing how things change over time. So, for example, I'll give you this one for the road. The moment that we first uh, knew that we were going to be wearing faux denim in the 1994 World Cup was Adidas, which was the sponsor of the team back then, brought us into a, an environment and introduced us, if you will, to the shirts that we were going to be wearing. It was in a, uh, a ballroom that was all cordoned off and secure in a, uh, in a hotel, if I remember correctly. And they brought a group of us in, including our head coach, Boromir Latinovich, and they unveiled this thing, and there it was in all its glory, the faux denim that has become such a legendary type of uh, aesthetic for the U.S. national team. I would be lying to you if I told you that we all w- were, uh, you know, smiles and cheers and amazement and our mouths open, gaped in awe. Uh, our mouths were open and gaped in awe in that we couldn't believe that this is what they were going to have us run around <laughs> in 1994, including our head coach, Bora Milotinovic, who, as I've told you many times, spoke five languages, none of them well, uh, and all he could muster was, what is this? What is this? <laughs> <laughs> so to say that the denim uh, kit got off to a rousing start would would not be correct. A lot of us left scratching our heads and being uh, being pretty sure that if we didn't play well, it was going to only going to be exasperated by what we looked like. All of that is to say that now twenty five and, and when, when twenty five years on when it comes to MLS, but certainly twenty nine years on or whatever it comes when it comes to the ninety four World Cup, the thinking has changed. And I know what's old is new again. It was on display on the fashion uh, in the fashion sense in that what was what was 90s is now back even what is 80s is now back whether it's uh, you know shoulder pads or high-waisted jeans or or anything else out there members only jackets all that kind of stuff uh, it, it is 
the way that we think about things now are very different, and nostalgia plays uh, plays into that. I look back at the designs of, for example, MLS back in the 90s, and they were big and they were bold, but at least they were different. And I think there is a fear of doing something different. And I know there's a business behind it, but there is a fear at times of doing something too out there, too outside the box. And ultimately, this is sports. And yes, it is a business, but the ability to have fun and the ability to push the envelope, uh, I think sometimes is lost in this day and age. And it's a pity. And yes, there were things that we can agree weren't good or were better than others, but I love the fact that we were doing things, and maybe it was the time that we were able to do things, but we were doing things different, and we pushed the envelope, and we did things that were big, bold, beautiful, arrogant, and while in the moment they might not have resonated, if you believe in them, in times they will reson- in time they will resonate, and I think that's the case when it comes to the denim kit. I think that's the case when it comes to a lot of the um, the designs uh, that we saw in the '90s when it came to MLS. And uh, here's to another 25 years of interesting and different and unique designs, because the more of them we have, the better off we are. All right. Anything else, Mossy, before we head off? Nope. We appreciate you indulging us this week on all the different things that we do. Uh, Thank you, guys. Anything to say to the folks before we leave? Alex, Louise? Uh, Nothing from me. Glad to be back. Wonderful. Glad to have you back. Wonderful, riveting stuff, as always, from both of you guys. So now we've had four voices. Our next order of business when it comes to changing, because we told you at the beginning of the year, we're going to start to add some different things. Our next order of business at, at some point going forward is to actually have a guest on the show. So that's it's coming, all right? I'm not telling you when it's coming, but it's going to it's going to come, all right? Not people behind the microphone here, but actually coming in from the outside, at which case we're going to have to get dressed up or we're going to have to be in our best behavior, all right? Let's make sure that we are, we are doing that. So I don't want to scare anybody before that happens. All right. Thank you so much for downloading and uh, sending us your Ask Alexi questions uh, and reviewing and subscribing and uh, doing all the things that you do out there. It means the world to us. As I said at the beginning of the show, the fact that people and so many people now are coming up to me and talking about the pod, it warms the cockles in my heart. It's amazing that anybody out there is listening to the things that we're doing, but we are incredibly appreciative and we want to make sure that you continue to do that and give you the uh, type of podcast that you've come to, the, to come to expect and to make it better as we go forward. And with your help and your input, we can do that. So make sure that you send those along, especially use that Ask Alexi or Ask Mossy out there. And we will continue to do that again next week. All right. We will see you next week. And as always, size the day.